You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Oh, oh, stop it. This whole tea party is getting totally out of control. Well, why don't we sing a song? Well, what, what can we, we sing? sing? We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is the wizard of a wiz, if ever a wiz there was. If ever a ever a wiz there was. The wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 17th day of October 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the program and ask them all, as always, to check into the website CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to websites that support the Corbett Report and which the Corbett Report supports. I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind listeners to tune into In the Zone on republicbroadcasting.org every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Mountain, 11 Central, and 12 a.m. Eastern in order to catch myself as co-host on In the Zone with Lieutenant Eric Shine. I'd like to thank all of the listeners who sent in their feedback regarding the iTunes store issue that I mentioned on the beginning of the podcast last week. And to let all of the listeners know that I am currently in touch with Apple support about resolving the issue, although I have been less than impressed with the support I've received so far, but hopefully that will change in the next few days. So a solution is being worked on, and I will certainly update you when and if that's resolved. But of course, for the time being, to subscribe to our RSS feed, please go to CorbettReport.com, click on the subscribe tab, and there you can find links to all of our RSS feeds. Or if you don't know how to use RSS feeds, please put your name and email address and you can get an email update every week with links to the latest podcast. But on that note of thanking everyone for their feedback regarding the iTunes Store issue, I would uh, at this point like to extend a thank you to everyone for all of the correspondence that I continue to receive. Of course, it is too much for me to personally respond to each person, so I hope you don't take it as a personal insult if I don't get back to you promptly or even if I don't get back to you at all. But I certainly do try to read everything that does come in, and I am greatly appreciative for all the feedback and all the news tips that I receive every week, so please continue to send them in, and I will continue to respond as, if, and when possible. But finally this week, I'd like to give a special thank you to all of those who continue to monetarily support the Corbett Report, because of course, independent media is not free and does cost money to produce, so I am greatly appreciative to all of the people who continue to send in their support, but although I've been remiss in my duties recently in responding in a prompt manner with a thank you to everyone who sends in their donation, which I do try to do, I'd like to start thanking people verbally on the podcast for their support. So just in the month of October, I'd like to thank Samuel from Belgium, Harry from America, Leander from America, Michael from Australia, Vincent from America, and Rick from the Netherlands for your monetary donations this month. It has been greatly appreciated. And I, I again, continue to appreciate everyone who supports the the Corbett Report either financially or by spreading the information through word of mouth. This podcast would not be what it is without all of you. So thank you very much. And without further ado, let's get into today's Sunday update.
This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 17th day of October 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, stunning documents have been unearthed exposing a secret Canadian government program to prepare for the roundup and internment of over 16,000 Canadian citizens and the close surveillance of another 50,000 Canadians under the cover of fighting communism. The plan, going by the name Profunk, included potential detainees' names, ages, physical descriptions, photographs, descriptions of vehicles, family details, and even details on which door RCMP officers should use in each person's home when they were to be rounded up. According to new details of the plan unearthed by the Fifth Estate and Radio Canada's enquête, people deemed by the RCMP to be security risks could be detained indefinitely, subject to severe discipline, and even shot for trying to escape detention. The plan was so secret, the Federal Solicitor General Robert Kaplan, who was officially responsible for overseeing it, told the CBC he didn't even know it existed when he was minister in the early 80s. The program, referred to as a contingency plan by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, called for the arrest and forcible detainment of Canadians that the bureaucrats accused of communist sympathies, including even the man who eventually became the Attorney General of Manitoba, Roland Penner. Anyone detained under the plan was to be treated as a prisoner with a carefully prescribed regimen of military discipline. The rules actually allowed officers to kill anyone attempting to escape the internment camps. The plan was top secret and there was no form of judicial oversight over the lists and no scrutiny, scrutiny of who was being placed on them or why. Even Canada's Federal Solicitor General was not informed of the plan, which was enacted in 1950 and not stopped until the early 1980s. Now there is indication that the plan may actually have been enacted to deal with one of Canada's most famous national emergencies, the FLQ crisis in October 1970 in which Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act and implemented martial law to deal with a hostage crisis involving two government officials. No, I, I still go back to the choice that you, <laughs> you have to make in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any family. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. At, at uh, reducing civil liberties? To that extent? To what extent? Well, would, if you extend this and you say, okay, you're going to do anything to protect them, this include wiretapping, uh, reducing other civil liberties in some ways? Yes, I think the society must take every means at its disposal to defend itself against the uh, emergent of a parallel power which defies the elected power in this country, and I think that goes to any distance. So long as there is a power in here which is challenging the elected representative of the people, I think that power must be stopped, and I think it, it's only, uh, I repeat, weak-kneed, uh, bleeding hearts who are afraid to take these measures. Although long interpreted as insight into Trudeau's hubris, those words may have been more than merely posturing. The records indicate that the Montreal police had only 60 names on their list of FLQ sympathizers when the War Measures Act was invoked. Quebec's provincial police, however, did not think that 60 names sounded like enough. So the RCMP provided hundreds more, and within hours of the War Measures Act implementation, over 500 people were under arrest for supposed association with the FLQ, including many with communist associations in their background, but no link whatsoever to the FLQ. These names are presumed to have been supplied from the pro-funk list. 
Ironically, the program was ended by accident on an order from then-Attorney General Robert Kaplan, responding to complaints by some Canadians that they have difficulty travelling abroad due to security concerns. At the time, Kaplan did not even know the, of the existence of the program, nor that his order effectively ended Profunk, at least in its admitted form. Although Canadians have expressed shock at the existence of such a program, mass detentions and roundups of peaceful and law-abiding citizens have occurred in Canada's past. In 1942, several months after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, 22,000 Japanese Canadians were sent to camps in northern British Columbia. Their homes and their livelihoods were taken away. Their families were torn apart. Not one was ever charged with an act of disloyalty. Brian Mulroney promised justice in the 1984 election campaign, but for four years all his government offered was an apology and a fund for the Japanese community, no money for individuals. Then last month, the White House offered Japanese Americans, in turn there, compensation. Today, the Canadian government did the same. Off the plans closely resemble similar plans developed in the United States under the Master Contingency Plan, known as Operation Garden Plot. FEMA has built prisons around the country, and they've also built underground facilities. It actually turns out that they are the key agency to implement a plan known as Operation Garden Plot, the plan to put American citizens in prison camps. Under Executive Order 12919, signed by Bill Clinton on June 3, 1993, presidential authority under a 1950s Defense Production Act was delegated to the Secretaries of Defense, Agriculture, Treasury, and Commerce to seize all civilian property for the government solely by declaring them necessary for national defense. It also gave the Director of FEMA the authority to implement FEMA plans during a national emergency. Most people don't realize that this country has been in a declared state of emergency since the Federal Emergency Act was enacted in 1933, which was the beginning of FEMA, and also gave presidents the authority to issue executive orders. Each president since then has issued an executive order declaring a state of national emergency. A declaration of national emergency was declared on September 14, 2001, in the wake of the September 11th events, and has been renewed by Presidents Bush and Obama every year since, with the latest renewal signed by Obama on September 10, 2010. One of the key contingency plans developed under Operation Garden Plot was known as REX-84, short for Readiness Exercise 1984, which was written by Iran-Contra conspirator and Fox News personality, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and called for the detention of an unspecified number of Americans during times of civil unrest. Colonel North, in your work at the uh, NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? Mr. Chairman, I believe that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area, so may I request that you not touch upon that, sir. I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan uh, developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency that would suspend the American Constitution. And I was deeply concerned about it and wondered if that was the area in which he had worked. 
I believe may that I, it was. I most, I to get may I most respectfully request that that matter not be touched upon at this stage. If we wish to get into this, I'm certain arrangements can be made for an executive session. Rex 84 was modeled on a 1970 Army War College report by ex-FEMA head Louis Giofrida, which called for the roundup of 21 million African Americans in the event of a black uprising in the U.S. In related news, the slow march toward the full implementation of martial law in the United States, which has been taking place for decades, reached a crescendo this week when the Coast Guard upheld its own declaration that it is a special branch of the military with the authority to prosecute American civilians in military tribunals. This latest development comes in a decision on appeal that was issued earlier this week in the case of Eric Schein, a merchant marine officer who is being tried as a civilian in an Article 32 proceeding by the Coast Guard, which, since its transfer to the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, considers itself a branch of the military, which somehow retains its right to operate as a civil defense and police agency and to prosecute civilians. Under American law, the military is not allowed to prosecute civilians. Eric Schein appeared on the Corbett Report earlier this week to talk about his case and its ramifications. Well, the Coast Guard, a special branch of military that I'm not in, that's not supposed to be a branch of military, that's been changed into a branch of military under the cover of the launching of the war in Iraq in March of 2003, uh, when it was moved from not the Department of Defense, but the Department of Transportation where it resided, into the newly found, uh, newly created Department of Homeland Security, which was originally going to be called the Department of Homeland Defense, and they are under the impression that they can file charges and civil complaint, and they're trying to say that this is an administrative proceeding, although they filed charges against me and a civil complaint. Within their own military or system of military tribunals, they've even stated within these proceedings that it's an Article 32 proceeding, that they've had me in for the last eight years. They even went as far as in the final order that just came out, which is called a Commandant's Decision on Appeal, blamed me, somebody who they're declaring to be mentally ill, uh, with the, the fact that it took eight or ten years for them to do this. How can they get away with this? I mean, what are... Because no one else is doing anything. I'm on my own against a branch of military that most people, it's, a lot of people see it as a branch of military, even though it's not supposed to be one. A lot of people know it's not supposed to be one. A lot of people don't even know that it is saying that it's a branch of military now in Homeland Security. A lot of people don't understand the ramifications of that to where they've moved military law, martial law, out of the Department of Defense and into the Department of Homeland Security. And I could go on and on, and this Coast Guard is looking for, to purchase submarines now. Uh, the, the Coast Guard is this extra-constitutional branch of military now, it, it's a rabid dog. They've gone over the edge. They're loading in close weapon systems, uh, dual gatling uh, uh, failing um, dual gatling guns that fire 4,500 rounds per minute on Coast Guard vessels. They've you know built these new national security cutters. It's almost as a complementary fleet, and as if we are preparing for world war, world conflict with Europe, the European Union if not some type of Asian Union at the same time.
Now, please go to CorbettReport.com to download the audio MP3 of episode 154 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Cross of Gold, where we examine William Jennings Bryan, The Wizard of Oz, and the essence of money. Welcome, my friends, to episode 154 of the Corbett Report, The Cross of Gold. And we begin our open-source exploration of today's topic in a most unlikely place. My! People come and go so quickly here. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. Yes, that's right, The Wizard of Oz, although not the 1939 Hollywood classic that everyone knows and loves from their childhood years, but the 1900 original written by Lyman Frank Baum. I suppose at this point my listenership will be divided into two camps, the first being those people who have watched the excellent documentary from Bill Still, one of the men behind The Money Masters, his new documentary being The Secrets of Oz, or those who have read Henry Littlefield's classic interpretation of The Wizard of Oz called Parable on Populism, and those people who are not familiar with those works and thus really have no idea where this is leading. And for those people who have not yet listened to or watched The Secrets of Oz by Bill Still, I would highly, highly recommend it for the third or fourth time now on this podcast because it is an excellent overview of the central issue of American politics in the history of the United States. States, which is the issue of who controls the money supply. And I will leave that for you to begin exploring on your own, but we will start today with a clip from The Secrets of Oz, because in order to understand how on earth The Wizard of Oz relates to today's topic, the Cross of Gold, or even what the Cross of Gold is, we first have to have an understanding of mid to late 19th century American economics. And although we are trained to think that that's a boring subject, it is actually quite fascinating, as demonstrated by this clip from The Secrets of Oz, which begins during the Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln, of course, has to go cap in hand to the bankers who have engineered that war in order to find funding for his Union army. In 1861, Lincoln went to New York to apply for the necessary war loans from what he hoped were patriotic American bankers. But the bankers saw him coming and knew that the plan was to split the country in two. And so there was a high probability that Lincoln's government would default on any loans. Consequently, they demanded an interest rate of as much as 36%. Lincoln returned to Washington depressed. Then Lincoln came up with the most brilliant idea of his presidency. He decided to return to America's colonial monetary roots, have the government issue their own money. In a letter to his friend Colonel Dick Taylor of Chicago, Lincoln explained his plan to finance the war. 
issue treasury notes bearing no interest printed on the best banking paper. It will give to the people of this republic the greatest blessing they ever had, their own paper to pay off their own debts. So that is exactly what Lincoln did. From 1862 to 1865, he printed $450 million of the new bills, which he called U.S. notes. To distinguish them from debt-based money, he had them printed in green ink on the back with a red seal on the front. That's why the notes were called greenbacks. Since Congress had declared greenbacks to be legal tender for all debts, Lincoln was able to pay his troops and buy their supplies with this new money, all created at no interest to the federal government. As MIT professor Dr. Davis Rich Dewey would write 40 years later in his Financial History of the United States, The underlying idea in the greenback philosophy is that the issue of currency is a function of the government, a sovereign right which ought not to be delegated to corporations. By now, Lincoln realized who was really pulling the strings and what was at stake for the American people. Lincoln understood the matter better than even Jackson apparently had. This is how he explained his monetary views according to some sources. The government should create, issue, and circulate all the currency and credit needed to satisfy the spending power of the government and the buying power of consumers. The privilege of creating and issuing money is not only the supreme prerogative of government, but it is the government's greatest creative opportunity. By the adoption of these principles, the taxpayers will be saved immense sums of interest. The financing of all public enterprises will become matters of practical administration. Money will cease to be master and become the servant of humanity. Meanwhile in Britain, a truly incredible editorial in the London Times explained the Bank of England's attitude towards Lincoln's greenbacks. If this mischievous financial policy, which has its origin in North America, shall become permanent, then the government will furnish its own money without cost. It will pay off debts and be without debt. It will have all the money necessary to carry on its commerce. It will become prosperous without precedent in the history of the world. The brains and wealth of all countries will go to North America. On April 14, 1865, 41 days after his second inauguration and five days after the end of the Civil War, Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater. The Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, lamented the death of Abraham Lincoln. The death of Lincoln was a disaster for the world. There was no man great enough to wear his boots. I fear that foreign bankers, with their torturous tricks, will entirely control the exuberant riches of America and use it systematically to corrupt modern civilization. They will not hesitate to plunge the whole world into wars and chaos in order that the earth should become their inheritance. Ten years after Lincoln's death, Bismarck himself narrowly escaped an assassination attempt in 1875. After the death of President Lincoln, the bankers began to reassert their control over America's money. This was no easy task. Lincoln's greenbacks, just like Rome's plentiful debt-free coins and England's debt-free tally sticks, were generally popular, and their existence had let the genie out of the bottle. The public was becoming accustomed to debt-free money.
popular songs sang the Greenback's praises. On April 12, 1866, Congress passed the Contraction Act, authorizing the Secretary of the Treasury to begin to retire the greenbacks in circulation and to contract the money supply. Authors Ted Thorne and Richard Warner explained the results of the money contraction in their book on the subject, The Truth in Money Book. The hard times which occurred after the Civil War could have been avoided if the greenback legislation had continued as President Lincoln had intended. Instead, there were a series of money panics, what we call recessions, which put pressure on Congress to enact legislation to place the banking system under centralized control. In 1866, there was $1.8 billion in currency in circulation in the United States, about $50.46 per capita. In 1867 alone, $500,000,000 was removed from the U.S. money supply. Ten years later, in 1876, America's money supply was reduced to only $600,000,000. In other words, two-thirds of America's money had been called in by the bankers. Incredibly, only $14.60 per capita remained in circulation. What's so important about how money was withdrawn from the U.S. money supply? Because this is the real cause of depressions, deliberate manipulations of the money supply by big bankers to get what they want politically. The very thing King Henry was trying to put a stop to when he created tally sticks in 1100 A.D. What were the bankers after? Again, a return to their beloved, privately owned central bank that Jackson had killed, something they were not able to achieve until the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. But it gets worse. Ten years later, the money supply had been further reduced to only $400 million, even though the population had boomed. The result was that only $6.67 per capita remained in circulation, an 84% decline in just 20 years. The people suffered terribly in a protracted, severe depression. But the bankers were not done bringing post-Civil War America to its knees. They wanted to take all silver money out of the system and make only gold be money. In 1872, a British banker named Ernest Said was given 100,000 pounds, about $5 million in today's money, by the Bank of England and sent to America to bribe the necessary congressman to get silver demonetized to further reduce the money supply. The Bank of England wanted America's money in their control, and what better way to achieve that than mandating a gold-only money system? The next year, Congress passed the Coinage Act of 1873, and the minting of silver dollars abruptly stopped. In 1874, Said himself admitted who was behind the scheme. I went to America in the winter of 1872-73, authorized to secure, if I could, the passage of a bill demonetizing silver. It was in the interest of those I represented, the governors of the Bank of England, to have it done. Newspapers derided the act as the crime of 73. Everybody knew about it. The average American hated it. Demonetizing silver made money even more scarce. It put the bankers, who were the primary holders of gold, in even greater control of America. 
So to recap, Lincoln was rebuffed by the banksters, and instead of going to them to grovel and beg for a few scraps of metal that they've mined out of the ground, or more accurately, employed basically slaves to mine out of the ground for them, he decides to print his own money, paper money, called greenbacks, issued completely debt-free by the United States government, and they were a startling success, allowing the Union side to pay for all of their military expenses without the enormous amounts of debt that it otherwise would have incurred. Again, money being printed completely debt-free, out of nothing. And then when Lincoln was pumped full of hot lead, like other people who have tried to go up against the banksters, he, of course, the, all of his ideas and decisions were overturned, the, green banks, the greenbacks were eventually stopped, and of course, next was silver, which had to be demonetized, that is, silver dollars had to stop being minted in order for gold to be the one and only true backing of the US dollar. Because the banksters have, and have for a long time, completely controlled gold. And if you control the, what backs the money, then you control the money. And if you control the money, you control the people. So as you heard in that clip, the Coinage Act of 1873, which demonetized silver, was later referred to as the Crime of 73 by a group known as the Populists, which was really taking prominence in the 1890s during some of the hardest economic times pre-Great Depression in American history, and people were genuinely, truly upset about what had happened because silver was relatively easy to find and mine and was not so easy to control on the bankster side, while gold, of course, was very scarce and greatly under the control of the banksters. So the Western farmers and miners and others who relied on their silver as forms of payment suddenly found their forms of payment demonetized and they of course suddenly found a huge huge contraction in the amount of money circulating through the system and as bill still helpfully explained in that clip the less money well that really is what recessions and depressions are all about is squeezing the money supply Again, I find this an extremely fascinating period of American history and one that really does deserve to be delved into in greater detail. But let's cut to the chase and let's start to take a look at the man who will connect this to the Wizard of Oz, and that's William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan was a congressman from Nebraska, born in 1860 and died in 1925, and he became the Democratic nominee for President of the United States in the 1896 and 1900 and 1908 elections, the former two elections being against William McKinley. And I'm sure my American listeners and many others in the audience will know that McKinley did go on to win those elections, but it was Bryan's sudden meteoric rise to prominence in the 1890s in the Democratic Party at the tender young age of 36 that makes his story so noteworthy. And basically, he came to prominence on the back of a speech which has gone down as, by many observers' calculations, the most important political speech in American political history. The speech was delivered at the Democratic Party National Convention in Chicago in 1896 and hinged on Bryant's support for the Free Silver Movement, which advocated the coinage of silver, the remonetization of silver, in the late 19th century, which had been, of course, demonetized by the 1873 Coinage Act, and further reduced in importance by the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1893. 
Brian was an advocate of bimetallism, which was the philosophy that the money should be backed up by both silver and gold. And that was a philosophy that was inflationary in nature, which was good for debtors like the Western farmers and miners, but very bad for the Northeastern industrialists and banksters who, of course, controlled the money supply very tightly and benefited from doing so. This is an important point to keep in mind for later on. Brian supported silver and gold whereas the banksters supported only gold. And that is where we pick up the speech. Yes, the speech that is really one of the most famous speeches in American political history, and by some calculations, the most important ever delivered. And that is his speech called the Cross of Gold, which was delivered at that Democratic National Party convention in 1896. Amazingly enough, there does exist a recording of that speech, but it is a recording that was recorded some three decades later, of course, after recording technology had advanced somewhat because the original uh, rec speech was not recorded. But the speech that he delivered in 1896 was then recorded in his own voice in the 1920s, and we can pick up at least some of that speech and listen to the actual recording of William Jennings Bryan and the beginning of his Cross of Gold speech. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the convention, I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentlemen to whom you have listened if this were a mere measuring of abilities. But this is not a contest between persons. The humblest citizen in all the land, when clad in the arm of a righteous cause, is stronger than all the hosts of error. I come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. When this debate is concluded, a motion will be made to lay upon the table the resolution offered in commendation of the administration and also the resolution offered in condemnation of the administration. We object to bringing this question down to the level of persons. The individual is but an atom. He is born. He acts, he dies, but principles are eternal, and this has been a contest over a principle. Never before in the history of this country has there been witnessed such a contest as that through which we have just passed. Never before in the history of American politics has a great issue been fought out as this issue has been by the voters of a great party. On the 4th of March, 1895, a few Democrats, most of them members of Congress, issued an address to the Democrats of the nation, asserting that the money question was the paramount issue of the hour, declaring that a majority of the Democratic Party had the right to control the action of the party on this paramount issue, and concluding with the request that the believers in the free coinage of silver in the Democratic Party organize, take charge of, and control the policy of the Democratic Party. Etc., etc. Well, I will allow you to follow the link from the documentation section to find the link back to that audio so you can listen to it for yourself. And it does go on uh, and cover at least the key points of that speech, although not the entire speech. Only parts of the speech were recorded by William Jennings Bryan in the 1920s. 
So it's not the full speech, and it's certainly not the speech as it was delivered in 1896. As I'm sure you can tell, it doesn't exactly have the same drama or impact as it did at that time when it was being delivered in front of all those people who were deeply interested in the questions raised by that speech. So it really does lose something in the translation, I think. So uh, although it's obviously valuable to have the historical record of the speech being read by the person who wrote it, it is definitely better uh, to to read the reactions of the people who were listening to the speech and to read about its final dramatic moments. But uh, in an effort to make it a little bit more dramatic, I will now attempt to dramatize the end of that speech, which I think is extremely powerful and I think needs to be read in a slightly more dramatic manner. So allow me to introduce to you the end of the Cross of Gold speech. Quote, There are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous, that their prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it. You come to us and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. I tell you that the great cities rest upon these broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. My friends, we shall declare that this nation is able to legislate for its own people on every question without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation on earth, and upon that issue we expect to carry every single state in the Union. I shall not slander the fair state of Massachusetts nor the state of New York by saying that when citizens are confronted with the proposition, is this nation able to attend to its own business, I will not slander either one by saying that the people of those states will declare our helpless impotency as a nation to attend to our own business. It is the issue of 1776 over again. Our ancestors, when but three million, had the courage to declare their political independence of every other nation upon earth. Shall we, their descendants, when we have grown to 70 million, declare that we are less independent than our forefathers? No, my friends, it will never be the judgment of this people. Therefore, we care not upon what lines the battle is fought. If they say bimetallism is good, but we cannot have it till some nation helps us, we reply that, instead of having a gold standard because England has, we shall restore bimetallism, and then let England have bimetallism because the United States have. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, having behind us the commercial interests and the labor interests and all the toiling masses. We shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. End quote. Or... At least that's how it supposedly went, with at least one reporter on the scene writing that some, quote, like demented things, divested themselves of their coats and flung them high in the air, end quote, upon hearing the end of the speech, and that the applause came like, quote, one great burst of artillery, end quote, 
And it was on the basis of that speech that William Jennings Bryan was swept up into power as the Democratic presidential nominee and the standard bearer of the free silver movement and the quest for bimetallism. And it is at this point that we can connect this into the beginning of today's episode and connect it to the Wizard of Oz. And we can turn to the work of Henry Littlefield, a high school teacher who wrote an article called The Wizard of Oz Parable on Populism that has had a long-lasting effect on the study of and the critical study of The Wizard of Oz and its deeper meaning. And it was his thesis, basically, that L. Frank Baum was more or less writing an allegory about that period of history, American history. And in that parable, the cowardly lion is none other than William Jennings Bryan. The great man with a ferocious roar who apparently did not have the courage of his convictions because after his defeats in 1896 and 1900, he ended up abandoning the free silver movement. And that's where the cowardly part of the cowardly lion comes in. And I will not go into all of the details, but there are also the, the tin man who represents the industrial workers and the, the scarecrow who represents the well-meaning but muddle-headed farmers of the West who don't understand the importance and power they have. And most importantly, you have Dorothy, who in the original book was not wearing ruby slippers, which of course was used as a way of taking advantage of the wonderful Technicolor universe of 1939. But actually, in the original book, they are silver shoes, and it is the silver shoes which carry her back home, and it is the silver shoes walking upon the yellow brick, i.e. gold, road, which is the key to the story, i.e. the silver and gold together is what gets her to the Emerald City, obviously the greenbacks, the green currency, and their quest is basically like the farmers and industrialists marching on Washington to get the bimetallism, which they've always had in their grasp, but they just didn't realize that was the key. Or at least that's the interpretation by Littlefield. Others have disputed this interpretation, but I think it certainly serves as a very interesting way to get a handle on that story and an interesting way to introduce the idea to people. And I'll let you look more into that through the links I'll provide to Littlefield's essay, as well as some other critical works about The Wizard of Oz and its possible allegorical meanings. But there you go. We have a famous piece of literature that may or may not completely rest on a piece of American history that is by and large completely forgotten, and forgotten obviously because it is no longer taught to sco in schools and it is no longer taught because it is so amazingly important. Because always, 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 the ruling oligarchs don't want people to know about the history of what has been done, because that provides people with ideas of what they can do and what is still in their grasp. Now, some of you may have been confused at this point, having heard for so long, for so many years now, that gold is money and that we have to return to a gold-backed currency to prevent hyperinflation. But here we have another side to that debate, and although both sides can absolutely agree that we do not need private banks to privately issue debt-based money, which the public has to go into eternal servitude in terms of taxes in order to never fully pay off, but to always be indebted to the banksters, well, that obviously is a situation which none of us, except obviously the banksters themselves, can abide. But what is the solution? Well, as opposed to a gold-backed currency, well, here we have an idea for bimetallism, but uh, in more recent years, people have been arguing for debt-free money issued 
again, out of nothing by the federal government, merely by its own powers. And that's a hard thing for some of the gold is money type people to swallow, but it is something that is definitely worth looking into. And it's obvious at this point that we have to ask the question, has this ever been done successfully in history? And I think we've already provided some of those answers in this podcast. For example, we took a look at the colonial script question a few episodes back, where we looked at the system of taking money and making it basically out of nothing, backed up supposedly by land, but basically by nothing. And that worked extremely well in the Pennsylvanian colony and did not work so well in other colonies pre-United States of America because uh, there were some governments that did not do it correctly and did overspend and therefore created hyperinflation, whereas the Pennsylvanian colony had a good system that worked well. And again, please go back and listen to my podcast on the colonial script phenomenon for more information about that. Uh, But there are other examples as well, not only from America, but from all over the world. And for that, let's pick up a very interesting example from ancient Rome, and let's turn back to The Secrets of Oz. What made Rome great? There were many factors, but certainly the most overlooked was the money system of the Roman Republic. About 300 BC, the Roman Republic supplied the people with a plentiful form of cheap money, money made from copper and bronze. Then they spent this cheap money into the economy. It was a revolutionary idea. Today, opponents of this money system call it fiat money money not backed by precious metals. But what the Roman Republicans had discovered was that it doesn't matter what backs the money, all that matters is who controls its quantity. Did it work back then? It was amazingly effective. Unlike today, it was a money system created without debt to the government. This was the first great experiment in wresting the money power from the goldsmiths. This cheap form of money circulated for the benefit of all citizens equally, not just the usual gold coins, which always benefit the rich. With this new, plentiful supply of money, real wealth flowed to the common man. Without the use of either gold or silver, Rome became mistress of commerce of the world. Her people were the bravest, the most prosperous, the most happy, for they knew no grinding poverty. Her money was issued directly to the people and was composed of a cheap material, copper and brass, based alone upon the faith and credit of the nation. With this abundant money supply, she built her magnificent courts and temples. She distributed her lands among the people in small holdings, and wealth poured into the coffers of Rome. But then, suddenly Julius Caesar changed the Roman money supply drastically. He started minting gold coins with his image on them. Then he declared himself emperor for life, putting an end to Rome's great experiment in elected government. The Republicans in the Senate hated gold money and the plutocracy, ruled by the rich, that it implied. Although the senators assassinated Julius Caesar, gold money now had taken root, empowered by the very rich, and the dictators they were able to buy with their gold. After Caesar's assassination, copper and brass were demonetized, taken out of circulation. The quantity of money was reduced by 90%. A deep depression set in. 
the average person had to sell his property just to buy basic necessities. The wealth of the nation was quickly concentrated into the hands of the richest Romans once again. Gone was the incentive to work hard and build a great nation for the common good. By 401 AD, Rome was sacked by the Visigoths and humanity was plunged into the gloom of the Dark Ages. So, in Rome, we learned that with cheap government-issued money, the Roman Republic flourished, but under gold money, it perished. This controversy between cheap money and gold money continues throughout history and, as we'll see, is symbolized in part by the Yellow Brick Road. So, it does not matter what backs the currency, it matters who controls the currency. And we certainly don't want the banksters to control it. Well, that is an interesting proposition, and it definitely deserves its due hearing. And on that note, we should definitely start to begin to take a look at this at a deeper level. Because I think the gold as money people have a definite strong argument that gold is a store of value. A gold ounce a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago would buy basically the same goods as a ounce of gold would today. And that means that gold does retain its actual value. And that is important. But there is an important distinction to be made between gold as a store of value and gold as a unit of exchange. This is an extremely important distinction because although gold would make a very good investment for someone who's looking to retain their value long term, for people who are actually interested in making transactions, gold and other precious metals are always in the purview and control of the very, very few people in our society, and they will have the control by going by the famous golden rule that he who has the gold makes the rules. They will have the control over society when currency is delimited to that special and very rare precious metal. If it has ever struck you as odd that there are people who are proposing that we base our entire world economy on a metal that is mined up out of the ground, and leave everything to chance as to how much gold is discovered, when it is discovered, how it is mined, who mines it, and who controls it, well, you're not the only one. There are many others who have had similar concerns. So although we're running out of time today and won't have time to take up all of the issues that have been set out on the table for us, we will have to wait for another time for that particular repast. But right now we can at least begin to dig into the buffet that has been laid out and we can start to take a look at some of the other ideas for ways to base our economy. And let's do that by turning to a very important, very short animated documentary of sorts. It's only seven or eight minutes, so it's certainly not so detailed, but it does give an excellent overview of the difference between money as a store of value and a money as a medium of exchange, and what that means, and why it's important. And this comes from Paul Grignon, who you might know we've interviewed twice on the Corbett Report, once for Economics 101 and one as a regular interview, so I would highly recommend that you check that out, as well as his previous documentary, Money as Debt and Money as Debt 2, and his new website, digitalcoin.info, which begins to explore a very different idea for basing our economy and our currency. But right now, let's just listen to this breakdown of the essence of money. In medieval times, just like today, 
people had problems with money. In those days, gold and silver coins were the universally accepted form of money. Precious metals were used as money because their scarcity made them valuable, even in small quantities. Unfortunately, it also made them scarce. Two other qualities made precious metals useful as money. They didn't spoil, and they did not get consumed. So they were ideal for saving. Unfortunately, the same properties made them ideal for hoarding. Hoarding worsened the problem of scarcity. Those who had wealth beyond their needs could acquire the metal coins and hold on to them, thus depriving everyone else of the money they needed to enable the convenient trading of real goods and services. As a result, though the weekly market always offered a wealth of goods and services to be traded, there was often very little coin available to make trade work efficiently. So, what did medieval folks do to solve their coin shortage problem? They invented market money, and this is how they did it. Each seller had a pretty good idea of what his or her sales would be if sufficient coins were available. Thus, sellers had a basis upon which to issue credit to themselves. This self-issued credit could then be used as money to buy other sellers' wares. People could do this because the participants at the weekly market were both producers and consumers. They went to the market to trade their products, literally. But what happened when the butcher wanted to buy something from the seamstress, but the seamstress wanted something from the shoemaker, not the butcher, and so on? Trading goods and services for other goods and services required coordination of many trades. It often required several steps before a seller could acquire what he or she really wanted to buy. Bartering like this has always been a cumbersome process. That's why money was invented. And sometimes money has to be reinvented. So one day, during an economic slowdown caused by a serious shortage of precious metal coins, that happened. Anton the baker, whose bread was always in demand, could easily count up the people he knew would buy his bread if they had the money. Anton could reliably expect to sell at least 20 silver pennies worth of bread at each market. Therefore, he reasoned, he could safely issue 20 silver pennies worth of Anton's bread vouchers and persuade his fellow sellers to accept this virtual bread in trade for their actual wares. Anton was a good man, trusted by all, so he had little trouble spending his 20 pennies worth of bread vouchers on the wares of other merchants. Most were able to understand the elegance of his idea right away. So those who had traded their wares for Anton's vouchers were, in turn, successful in trading said vouchers for other sellers' goods and services. Because the bread voucher's value was expressed in silver pennies, everyone knew what the voucher was worth relative to everything else. And they knew that every voucher was backed by the abundant supply of Anton's delicious smelling bread. So Anton's bread vouchers were soon recognized by all as reliable money based solely on the proven demand for Anton's bread. 
Throughout the day, Anton's vouchers would be returned to him in exchange for bread. Each voucher had completed a unique journey through the market, some short and some long. And all along the way, the vouchers facilitated trades that had nothing to do with Anton. It wasn't long before other producers began writing vouchers against their products and services. Soon the market was flooded with money in the form of virtual goods and services, all of it backed by the abundance of actual goods and services available at the market. With no shortage of money, everyone had unrestricted opportunity to sell their products or special skills to whatever extent there was real demand for them. This led to general prosperity and happiness. The only purpose silver served in this system was to provide a widely understood measure of value, in the same way that inches and feet, pounds and ounces were necessary for measuring lengths and weights. Anton liked to explain to the amazed people from other markets, no one has ever stopped from building a house due to a shortage of inches. And similarly, no one in this market has ever stopped from making a trade by a shortage of silver pennies. At the end of each market, outstanding vouchers were reconciled amongst the market merchants, with payments made in three ways, in product, in vouchers for the next market, or, as a final resort, in coin. This system was very successful. That's because it fulfilled the essential purpose of money. It guaranteed the existence of enough purchasing power to purchase all goods and services in demand. Well, I will leave for you to go to digitalcoin.info and begin exploring how Paul Grignon takes that as a basis for his very original and very interesting idea and proposal for a future currency, which has either nothing really to do with either backing it up with a commodity or just governments or politicians in some faraway location printing it up out of nothing. In fact, it's based on self-issued credit, which I think is an absolutely brilliant idea and definitely one that more people need to be looking into. So once again, please go to digitalcoin.info. But as I say, we are running out of time today, and I unfortunately can't even begin to cover all of the different aspects of this which makes it a good thing that the Corbett Report podcast is continuing and will continue to come back to this extremely important subject time and again in the future. But I will once again leave you to begin looking into this for yourself and continuing the research through which we can come to a more complex and more realistic understanding of what it is we are facing and how the oligarchy is trying to keep us oppressed by controlling our money. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me today and asking you to join me next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Just a dozen of the
been, been forced to 